Well, good morning, and again, Happy New Year. Um, it's good to be back and to see all your faces after, after having been away for a few weeks. Thank you for your prayers. I've received letters. I've received from um, people that are on Zoom. I've, re I've received emails um, praying for my family just to report. My family's doing wonderful and great. They've tested negative. They're happy, um, and we had a decent holiday celebration. We had to be a little separated, but it's okay. We were able to gather somewhat. Um, so again, thank you so much for your prayers. It's been very encouraging. Um, but a, a funny little story. If you're wondering where I got this title from, and, and if you didn't read the poem at the beginning, uh, let me just tell you a quick story. It's, gonna, it's not going to make sense at first. It's, it's a bit cheesy. <laughs> it's a bit cheesy. I'm a, I, I like being cheesy sometimes. I, sometimes I just can't help it. But so Thursday, December 17th, before I left to fly to Georgia, as we all know, a storm came through, a snowstorm. And me, being from the South, was not prepared for a storm, let alone a snowstorm. So I woke up thinking, OK, I'll just get in my car and drive away, not realizing that there was 20 inches of snow piled behind my car. And guess what I don't have? A snow shovel. Don't have a snow shovel. So me and my wisdom thing, and you know, being young, and at least I think that I'm strong, I decided, you know what, I can move all this snow with my hands and my feet. So I go out there, I'm again pushing and kicking to no avail. And my neighbor next door, she saw that I was struggling and they had snow shovels and she looked at me and she said, where are you from? <laughs> and I said, I'm from, I'm from Georgia. And she laughed, she said, let me give you a snow shovel. So for the next two hours, I shoveled snow and praise the Lord, I was able to make it to my flight just in time at, at Bradley. Storms, that's where I got this poem from and that's what, that's what inspired me to use that title. Storms are the triumph of his heart. It comes from one of my favorite lines of by one of one of my favorite poets, George Herbert, from one of my favorite poems. It's called The Bag. And it's, it's, it's in your bulletin, at least the, the first section of it, but make yourself familiar with this, with this guy. If you want an, a, a, an achievable New Year's resolution, make yourself familiar, if you're not already, with George Herbert, the 17th century Shakespeare-esque poet. The Bag. Uh, addresses the concerns of a person who is praying but is doubtful as to whether or not the Lord hears their prayers. It speaks to the person who doubts God's presence in their circumstances. We've all been there, haven't we? Sunday morning, we may sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And we will say it with vibrato, with faith, maybe even with real faith. And then something comes along and soils our mood or spoils the day. And all we see is that sinking sand. We forget on Christ the solid rock we stand and we see, all we see is the shifting sand underneath our feet. But it's actually in these stormy afflictions, whatever they may be, whatever they may be, you name it, fill in the blank. Christ works miracles and reveals his glory. Herbert wants us to know what the Bible has been saying all along. Yahweh does his best work when shepherd boys face Goliaths. 
Or think about the Israelites, those ragtag band of divinely freed slaves face a mammoth ocean in front of them and a terrifying army behind them. And they have to depend on Yahweh himself. Or consider Gideon. You know the story. Read it in Judges. Judges chapter 7. There is Gideon with 32,000 men ready to take on the Midian army. And God says, no, you have too many men. You have too many men for me to actually deliver you from the Midianites. Or, and, he, and he tells them, read it. He tells them, here's why. Lest you boast and say that I did it in my own strength. It's simply the mark that Yahweh is at work whenever the church, his people, are in desperate need of him. It's the mark of his work. For those of you who are old enough, and you remember the mid-80s to early, through, 80, through early 90s, excuse me, the show MacGyver. Remember that? MacGyver? Great, great show. I was young, but I remember. I remember a lot of it. And what was the mark of MacGyver? What was the mark of MacGyver? He didn't need many tools to, to conquer enemies and to escape or to, or to save victims. Give him a stick of bubble gum, some yarn, and a toothpick, and he will find a way to escape. He, doesn't, he didn't need much to win. It's the same with Yahweh. All he needs is three faithful young boys willing to obey the first commandment and defy the king's orders at the expense of their own lives in order to conquer a kingdom and save a people. He doesn't need human ingenuity, just faithfulness. He doesn't need earthly power, just faithfulness. So you see, storms are the triumph of his art, and faithfulness in those storms is yours. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I ask that you be with us as your word is preached, that you be faithful to minister to your people in their need, far beyond any capability that I have, O oh Lord. Your spirit is sovereign, is omniscient, and knows all that can do all. It can work wonders in people's hearts even right now. Even though I may not see it. But I praise you, O Lord, that you are sovereign over this assembly. That you are with this assembly. Whether they are here present or whether they be on Zoom or watching YouTube. Whether they be members of this church or whether they be visiting. I thank you, O Lord, that your word is powerful enough to reach across oceans to reach across this podium into the hearts, to reach through the screen. So, Father, we, I, I beg you, do the work that you have promised to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, we need, a, we need a recap. It's been quite some time since we have stepped foot in the book of Daniel. It's maybe been over a month. I forget how long, but it's been quite some time. So we need to catch our bearings, and a little, little briefing should get us in the right course. So remember, what's the context of Daniel? It's God's people learning to be faithful in exile. It's God's people learning to be faithful in exile. Now, 
to do, to, to be quite obvious, chapter three comes right after chapter two, that, to be Captain Obvious there for a moment. So remember what happened in chapter two. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Now, young children, have you ever had a nightmare that woke you from your sleep? That's what, that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He had this terrifying nightmare. But this was no common nightmare. Remember the dream? There's this great big statue. The head of the statue was gold. The, its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs of iron. And its feet, partly iron and partly clay. But then something, something unusual happens. And this is actually what terrifies, I'm assuming, this is what terrifies King Nebuchadnezzar. Here comes this little rock and destroys the entire statue. That's all it takes. This little rock destroys an entire statue. And this wakes Nebuchadnezzar from his dreams. And what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? He commands all of his wise men to come, and he tells them, I want you to tell me what I dreamed and to interpret it. No one can tell me what I've dreamed if I don't tell them first. So then the, these great talking heads of the Babylonian council, you know, all the, all the wise men, all the talking heads, they, they can't do it, and they're terrified. They're going to lose their heads. So they find Daniel, and Daniel is able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means. And it says something like this. That the king was actually the, the head of gold. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, was the head of gold. And, this, and, that, this, and that everything, all the other parts of the, of the statue were different kingdoms that were going to come after him. And this little rock that's going to come along is going to smash him to smithereens. His legacy, everything. Now, little children, let me give you a picture of what it means to be smashed to smithereens. Think of sand. Imagine holding sand at the beach in your hand. What would happen if a gust of wind came by? It'd blow it away. Without any effort, it'd blow it away. Why? Because sand is no match for wind. And that's the point of the dream, that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and any kingdom after him is no match for the coming kingdom. It will come to an end. And astonishingly, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? It looks like he repents. Doesn't it? It looks like he repents. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And this is where we pick up the narrative in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar needs another dose of God's power and weakness. So I have just three simple observations from this text. Three simple ones. The first is the church will face affliction. The second, Yahweh calls the church to be obedient under affliction. And the third, Christ fellowships with his people in their affliction. The first, the church will face affliction. You, this is found in verses 1 through 15. 
So, as I said before, apparently Nebuchadnezzar didn't catch the message in Daniel 2, that his kingdom is not a lasting one. And that all it's going to take is this little stone to crush him and his legacy and all the kingdoms and legacies after him. His confession in 247 that Yahweh is the God of gods and Lord of kings was, looks like to be a farce or shallow confession at best. A little side note. There's a, there's a bit of a Nebuchadnezzar in all of us, isn't there? How many times have we heard the word preached to our own souls? We're convicted of our own sins. We see our own idols. And we confess just to do it again. Now, Nebuchadnezzar may be more powerful than you, but he's not different than you. He has the same nature. This is the problem of his soul. This is the problem of Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't get it. He, want, he is going to defy this truth. He's going to set up his own image. And this is a massive image, and it's meant to dominate the whole entire scene. This monstrosity of an image, nine feet wide. Just get the picture. This is probably from here to somewhere past that podium. A massive image. And what is his requirement? To bow to the image. You don't have to give up your own deity just to just bow to Nebuchadnezzar's God and go on about your happy life. But this is the kind of logic pres- that presents a sore dilemma for people concerned with the law of Yahweh. It smacks against the first commandment. And this is the affliction that the people of God are in. This is the affliction that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and all those exiles that are seeking to be faithful to Yahweh, will they obey the first commandment or not? There's a bit of pressure here that we find in the text for them to compromise their convictions, to compromise the truth of Yahweh. There's just cultural pressure. And this pressure can look several ways. And, and as we see, often the affliction that the church faces is the pressure from the culture to adhere to its values and service deities. Usually before there's a fiery furnace, there's forced allegiance. That's what we see in here in these 15 verses. The, the word image is used 10 of the 12 times. And attached to that, it is said that Nebuchadnezzar set this up. You heard the repetition. That's why I wanted this text to be read out loud. You heard the mundane repetition that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, that he had set up, that he had set up, on and on and on. We'll, we'll get to more of that later. But that's what we meet. Is here is Nebuchadnezzar setting up his own image. And this is the pressure. First, there's a pressure of authority. We meet, again, the name Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned just six times in chapter, in verses one through seven. It's only mentioned twice in the rest of the chapter. This stresses the, pow- the, the, the king's power. If Daniel, if Daniel and his three friends are to be disobeying the king, they will disobey the highest authority in the land. Not only is there pressure from authority, but there's pressure that comes from conformity. Notice in verses 2 through 3, the, 
the civil servants that are mentioned and how they are told what to do in verses 4 through 5, and then they are threatened by death and by fire in verse 6. And what's the result in verse 7? Therefore, it says, all the peoples, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped. The praise band plays their instruments, and the crowd conforms by sticking their faces in the dirt and their rear ends in the, in the air. That's what everyone does. They conform. And everyone enjoys job security and comfort. That's all. Just a simple bending of the knee a few inches. And you can enjoy peace. It's simple. What other choice do they have? You see, there's a frightening coercion that comes from the mob and its worship. Everyone else is doing it. I dare not go against the majority. It's a temptation for its all, and it may be for, for those of you who are in high school or in middle school or even in college. It's very tempting, isn't it? It's very tempting to go against your peers. Not only do we see pressure that comes from authority and conformity, but there's this pressure that is intent, can be intensified by, by malice. And what is malice? It's the intent to harm. That's what it is. It's the intent to harm. What do we see? This is in verse 8. What do these Chaldeans say when they find out, when they see that these three young boys are defying the king's orders? They say, for this reason, uh, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. A more literal translation actually shows the malice behind it. The part where it says brought charges against the Jews, it actually says it tore their pieces. It tore their pieces. The intent was to harm these Jews because they were jealous of these Jews. And where do I get this idea that, that they're jealous? Well, maybe it's quite possibly in verse 12 where it says certain Jews, where they tell the king, certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Do you hear the, 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 possibly the, 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 the scent of jealousy there? This, these jobs could have gone to faithful Chaldeans. Why would you give them somebody else? So they, they seek to destroy them. And did you know that malice is actually one of the signs of a godless culture? It's a sign that the wrath of God is on a culture. What does Romans 1, 28 through 30 say? And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. There it is. It's a sign of a godless culture. And what do we have here in Daniel? We have a godless culture. And one of its signs that the wrath of God is on a people is malice. They're burning with anger, burning with jealousy. Sounds much like our cancel culture, doesn't it? You go against the, you go against the current culture of doctrine. They don't just want to persuade you. They want to end you. Godlessness. Godlessness. 
Not only is there pressure from authority and conformity and it's intensified by malice, but this malice, it's also pressure by intimidation. What does the king do? The king gives them this other opportunity. How gracious of the king. If you are ready, he says, if you are ready to bend the knee and to worship this image that I set up whenever the, all those instruments, the guitar, the drum, the flute, the harmonica, whatever, all those instruments. If you're ready, bow down and all will be well. All will be well. How gracious of this king. But if not, you'll be burned. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say? Here's a threat. He gave the threat, you will be burned by fire. And then here's the heresy. He says this, what God can deliver you from my hand? Has Nebuchadnezzar forgot his own confession? Certainly he has. Who wouldn't be intimidated with the thought of being roasted like a marshmallow in flames? Who wouldn't be intimidated by that? Who wouldn't at once let their knees buckle underneath them and say, you know what, I would much rather gain favor with the king. And the logic may go something like this. If I can just become, gain favor with him, prestige and become friends with the culture, then maybe I can actually change the culture. Certainly that, there's, there's a logic there. It's much better than dying, isn't it? It's far much better than dying. You know, there may, there may be truth to that at some level, but there comes a point when it's better to obey God rather than men. Even if it kills us, or even if, it, even if we lose social status, or friends, or family, or jobs, and that's the concern here. I have, I have a, a quick story. I, there was a former student of mine who I used to visit. Who, he's just graduated from um, Brown University right there in Providence, Rhode Island. And I would come visit him. And he told me this story one time. He was actually an RA at one of the, in one of the dorm areas, a resident assistant. And he, he told me this story that, you know, they had to go through these diversity trainings. All fine and well, these diversity trainings, fine. Well, in this diversity training, there, there was this moment where the RAs, the head RAs were, how do I put it? They were forcing this ideology on the people that, to my friend, was quite absurd. And there was another person in there who actually stood up and said something. Stood up and said something. And the moment he said something, guess what happened? They chewed him to bits. They wanted nothing to do with him. There was no reasoning. There was no rationale. It was loveless. It was hateful. With the aura of righteousness. And they kicked him out. And my friend, who's a Christian, decided to stay silent. Wise or not, it's not for me to discern right now. But it does show what it looks like to be pressured by authority and conformity, malice and intimidation. 
So how do we denuderate? How do we denuder, should I say, this pressure that we have? How would these exiles, how would they see this? How would this actually help them live in a culture toward they're being pressured, being pressured to say no to God and yes to sin? Well, our text doesn't give us like the New Testament will, these, these direct points, but suggestively they do. Remember the repetition that I brought up, how the king had set up, how if, if, if you laughed at all during that point or you yawned at that or you were not very impressed with it all, you, unbeknownst to you, you, you caught it. You caught exactly what the text was trying to convey. There's a bit of mockery there. It's mocking the Babylonian kingdom. So there's two points before we get to the actual mockery part, first notice the theological absurdity. Right there at the beginning, what, what verb do we see? Nebuchadnezzar made. There's a verb. He made or set up an image. Several times this word is used. Nebuchadnezzar in verse 15 actually uses it himself. Now back to verse 5. Notice the command. They are to fall down and worship this image that Nebuchadnezzar had, here's the verb again, has set up. How absurd is that? To worship an image that was made by man? For a Jew, this would blow their minds. This doesn't make sense. It, it's, it's, it's absurd. Now, go back home later today, take a highlighter of whatever color, just not black, and highlight all those places where you see the verb set up or made. And then go back and read it. And see and have a little chuckle and laugh. How absurd is that? To fall down and worship an image that somebody made up. Now back to the mockery part. You heard the repetition of all the instruments and all the officials and all of them coming to worship over and over and over and over again. I'm sure Cameron, thank you for reading that. (laughs) You did an excellent job. Um, but you heard the mockish tone. Certainly there's, is it, this, this was to reveal the, the pomp and the grandeur of this kingdom. And clearly it would have been an impressive occasion if you were there. Now imagine going to the Super Bowl. Imagine going to the concert of Michael Jackson. You'd be impressed with all of the pomp and all the show all the wealth and all the power and all the prestige. But the writer wants us to see the man behind the curtain. The gravitas and the impressive aura created by the king is really a storm without, storm clouds without rain, lines without claws. The writer is saying this. Yes, this is a fearful and terrifying trial, but can you not see how fake it is? An image set up, a God that is made, a God that is made. Can you not see it? This may, this may not take away the trembling, but at least you will see the truth. It may not take away the fear, but you will see the truth behind it. Illustration, in, in 1938, Hitler paid a visit to Italy, hoping to gain some, to create some alliance with Mussolini. And Mussolini entertained him by showing him all the great power of the Italian army. 
But there was something quite strange about the crowds there. And Hitler began to notice it. They had a sort of ill-humored apathy toward Hitler. Now, Hitler spent four hours there in Italy, four hours there in Florence. And then it became clear what was going on. The crowd that was ill-humored, the chairs, were, the chairs in the air were fake. They were fake. They were crowd effects from some Italian movie and were being amplified from the windows. <laughs> now imagine that. How funny is that? Here is all this great power and show and all the applause is fake. Great displays of power and real emptiness can go side by side. So we, we see that this is the pressure the church faces, forced submission in fiery furnaces. And we have seen how God's people can properly assess these afflictions through the use of humor. And the writer teaches us that humor is intended to help us and to stand against the pressure. We can call it holy laughter. Well, the church will face affliction. And secondly, Yahweh calls the church to obedience under affliction. How do these three men... Respond to the king's threats. They say this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What bravery, what courage from these teenagers. This is, actually the, this is actually the first miracle. Before we get to the fiery furnace, we have fearless young boys who are willing to give up their skin to obey God. That's a miracle. It has nothing to do with how strong they were. It had everything to do with the faith God had given them. But let us move on. See, their response focuses on the ability and the purpose of God. Certain English translations actually may confuse it if you see the conjunction, if there, it could shed a dark cloud of the whole thing. You begin wondering, are they wrestling with whether or not God is able to, does he exist or does he not exist? No. A better translation may sound like this. If our God exists, whom we are serving, he is able to deliver, to deliver from the burning fiery furnace and from your hand, O king, and he can deliver. You see, they're confident in God's ability to save, but they're not so certain about his purpose. They're confident in his ability to save, but they're not so certain about his purpose. Another way, they are unsure of his circumstantial will, whether or not they will be burned. But they were 100% sure of God's revealed will. You shall have no other gods beside me. And there's a lesson here for us. God hasn't promised to deliver us from all our troubles. Let me say that one more time. He hasn't promised to deliver us from all of our troubles. You may have to endure all the hardships of this life, whether it be cancer or career setback, whether the affliction, whatever the affliction may be, God has not promised that he will at all times and in all places set you free from those trials. 
As a matter of fact, he actually promises that, he will, that you will face them. That you will face them. But with an important caveat. Some New Testament scriptures can do the trick to convince us of this. In this world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. You will. Not might, not maybe, but you will. And here's a caveat, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. Or what does Paul say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we, here it is, share, as we share, abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. One more should do the trick. Well, no one count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, not maybe, but when. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. John, James 1, 1 through 2. And there are hordes others. You see, from the time sin enters the world in Genesis 3, all the way through the time Jesus makes all things new, you will consistently see through all the pages of Scripture, God's people having to endure trials, not necessarily escaping them. Observe how these three men didn't lose sight of this principle. What mattered to them was not deliverance, but obedience. What really mattered was worship, not security. Faithfulness to Yahweh, not favor with Nebuchadnezzar. Application. This gives us a full balanced picture of faith. Doesn't it? Faith knows the power of God. Verse 17. They say he is able. It guards the freedom of God. Verse 18. But if not, and holds the truth of God. Verse 18b. We will not serve your gods. You may not be happy with this type of faith. And quite frankly, one of my struggles as a young, reformed Christian guy, I don't have, I, have, I struggle with that, with uncertainty. I wrestle sometimes with mystery. I want my faith to be more, far more certain about God's ways. But this kind of faith is a faith with an allergy. It's allergic to be, un- to be uncertain about the details of God's will. But here we see in Daniel, these three young boys. Can I dare say that they were okay with being uncertain, even though if it cost them their life? God calls us to obedience under affliction. And affliction brings with it hordes of questions and uncertainty. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family? Why is this happening to me at all? Well, let us look to the example of our Savior also. What do we see there? We see him right there at the height of his emotional despair. Acknowledging that his father was able to remove the cup from him. If it was his will. And we see, we acknowledge that if it was not the father's will, he was going to submit to that. And he did. You see, the cup of wrath wasn't removed from Jesus so that this cup 
a blessing to be passed to us. As one Puritan put it, God has one son who never sinned. He has no sons who never suffer. God has one son who never sinned. He has no sons and daughters who never suffer. So not only do we see the church that will face affliction and God calls us to be obedient under affliction, lastly, Christ fellowships with his people in their affliction. This is the Emmanuel principle. That's the focus of this text, of this part of the text. God with us. God with us. I want us to look at verse 24 and 26. And deliverance is a key note here. What do we see? Nebuchadnezzar is enraged and he, he flames up. He heats up the furnace seven times more. He ties up these three young men, binds them and throws them into the furnace. Actually has them carried into the furnace by other men, which proved to be the demise of those other men. Which shows the tyrannical nature of Nebuchadnezzar. He could care less about the death of even his own men. He throws them in there. Now, don't let that just wash over you like water off a duck's back. Imagine you there. You feel the flames on your own face. You feel the heat of the flames on your own face. And you see these three young boys walking directly into it. And if it burns your face standing from afar, imagine what it does to their flesh. Imagine the horror you would feel. And here these three boys go in to those flames. You quite possibly hear the the guards scream and cry out for their own life. It's a terrifying image here. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a kid's tale. This is serious. But what happens? A great miracle happens. Nebuchadnezzar has to put on his glasses or clean his glasses. He has to clear his eyes. Starts doing some math. He's wait, didn't I put God, one, two, three, but one, two, four? I mean, wait, didn't I, have, didn't I have them tied up? It looks like they're walking around free. And one, the fourth one looks like one of the sons of a, of a god. He's astonished. He's shocked. They're walking around untethered and unharmed. And there's one there with them in the flames. The supreme being who had the power to take them out of the flames is found with them in the flames. Now, who is this? Well, the church historically has taken this as to be quite possibly a pre-incarnate Christ, and I, I take it to be so. And there's no way to prove it directly, but in any case, the fourth man is who is both the companion of these men and the protector of his people. This is vintage Yahweh. He, this is simply what he does. Again, we brought up the incarnation of, of, our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we find him doing when the world is at its darkest point? We find the Son of God coming to us, dwelling with us, suffering for us in our place condemned he stood. In our place condemned, he stood. He stands there with us. That's what John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us.
That's what Christ does. He fellowships with with you in your affliction. Vintage Jesus. So how should we take this this deliverance of Shari, Meshach, and Abednego? How should we take it? Should we, should we take this as a, as a promise that God is going to deliver us from all our trials? No, we shouldn't take it as a blueprint, but we should take it as a token. Christ did not take, keep them out of the furnace, but found them in it. He does not always protect you from distress, but it is in loneliness, betrayal, and in loss that the fourth man walks with you through those deep valleys. He has a a knack for for this, for exposing you to, yet keeping you through waters and rivers of fire, operating rooms, difficult marriages, failed parenting, empty, or should I say, in funeral homes. You see, storms are the triumph of his art. And let me end with this last story that I found so pertinent and a great way to end it. And I'm going to read it as it was written. Os Guinness tells of one of the periodic efforts to wipe out religious beliefs in the former Soviet Union. The Communist Party sent the KGB agents to the nation's churches on a Sunday morning. One such agent was struck by the deep devotion of an older woman who was kissing the feet of a life-size carving of Christ on, on the cross. He asked her, Babushka, which means grandmother, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general, secretary of our great communist party? Why, of course, she shot back. But only if you crucify him first. So now, we can meet our fiery furnaces and our afflictions with these three words. Old rugged cross. Amen.